Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with the architects Oliver Lutjens and Thomas Padmanabhan, who formed their practice in Zurich in 2007. Their buildings are beguiling, seemingly composed of the thinnest of planes, so that they appear like a series of super graphics or billboards folded together to make a volume. This flatness is countered by their deep and complex interiors, which often incorporate elements that are just a little bit out of the ordinary. In one project, a terrazzo column casts a shadow of wood laid into the floor, while in another, the doors to a winter garden take on the proportions of a giant window. I met with Oliver and Thomas at Splice Studios and Perseverance Works in Shoreditch, where we talked about, among other things, their fixation with Renaissance architecture and the inspiration they find in it, the illusion of truthful construction in buildings today that are no longer solid, but only ever hollow and layered, and the importance of humor in architecture to bring together not only people, but materials and objects too. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. teaching and when you're presenting your work, you tend to juxtapose two images of two different types of projects as precedents or references for the, the work you're doing. And typically you'll choose a project from the past and from a specific moment in the past, the Renaissance. And you'll pick a project from the 20th century as well, and generally between the 30s and 60s. Um, so there's specific time periods that seem important to you both. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you've explained this in the past as a, a kind of useful friction that a contemporary project can come out of and I'm just wondering why the Renaissance in particular um, and what are you looking for when you look at projects from this era well, the Renaissance was um, a, a very brief period in which architects um, were doing fantastic singular project based on very um, very limited knowledge of the past, say of antiquity. Huh? Um, the projects were usually inserted into the medieval fabric of uh, existing cities. Uh, they were um, often left unfinished. There were fragments. They were um, um, working with the mostly, especially in the in the normal house buildings with the construction methods of the time, 
yet they were developing a new language of architecture. So the fragmentary, the unfinished, the partially powerlessness of the actors, of the architects, we feel very close to that and we, we recognize our own time there. Um, at the same time, it was um, the, uh, the Renaissance was a self-conscious um, attempt to reconstruct architecture as a language. Um, and um, we don't, we're not interested in the Renaissance as the beginning of a new classicist tradition. We're not interested in it as an idealist, idealized um, historic epoch like it was uh, seen in the, in the 19th century. Mm. But we are interested in the individual achievements of, um, of very different characters and architects. And there we, we have a preference for those who, have, um, uh, who see the limits of their own work um, rather than um, uh, striving for um, complete harmony and balance. Say, we prefer Giulio Romano to his teacher um, Raphael. We prefer um, Michelangelo to... Um, to the San Gallos, or, or Alberti to Bramante. Mm -hmm. So there's a, um, we feel that um, the connection is also that um, uh, Renaissance Palazzo, for example, is usually a very um, normal masonry construction with a series of um, uh, outer layers of, of render or of natural stone that, that provide the architecture. Uh, that is visible. So there's a, a, a layering of things um, in the construction and we have to face the same problem today as we have increasingly layered construction that have a more complicated, um, where the idea of architecture truth is more complicated than in, in a modernist attempt to, to um, create a direct connection between um, constructive structure, spatial structure, and expression, huh? mm. which was very strong in, the, in, in, in our teachers or our, um, in the generation that came before us in Swiss architecture. There's this line that um, you always seem to start with when you give lectures mm -hmm. that I'm tempted to read back to you now. It's about a particular dilemma mm -hmm. that has to do more with uh, regions between the urban and rural but I think it could actually apply to a question about a dilemma between the past and the present. So I'm just going to read it, and then mm -hmm. I'd kind of like to talk about it for a bit. Um, so um, I think every lecture I've seen of yours online, this is how it begins. Our work starts with a dilemma. We love the city. We love streets, facades, squares, and rich, complex interiors. We love refined architecture. We love urban architecture. We love history, continuity, and time and architecture. Paradoxically, when we design buildings, we almost always end up in situations that are never clearly urban or rural, but blurry and fragmented and undefined in between. And I think that just from looking at the projects you guys have done, there's a lot to relish about being in between in architecture. Um, and not only in terms of being in between urbanity and the rural, but in between uh, a kind of frame of mind that's backwards looking and forwards looking. 
and I think this, this kind of ties back to the Renaissance question. What would be good to talk about is like where this fascination originated from. In the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. I think it's quite different with the two of us. Um, Thomas can maybe explain better his situations, but I'm somebody who comes from the present and through architects that I like uh, go back into the past. So for me it was, I think my first true love in architecture was the work of Alvaro Cesar. And I kind of understood that, that he's doing a contemporary architecture, but that addresses a much broader field. Um, it, it's, it's addressed uh, the Portuguese tradition, it addressed classical architecture, and when he travels and builds a house in Holland, it, it looks like a, a Dutch building, even though it's an Alvaro Cesar building. Plus, he has an extremely interesting formal um, way of making things that appealed to me a lot. And mm. through Cesar, I came to Venturi, and from Venturi there was kind of an opening up to the architecture from 500 years ago, Mannerist architecture, Renaissance architecture, Baroque architecture, whatever, and because that's what he writes about essentially in Complexity and Contradiction, and he doesn't look at it as a historian, but he looks at it as a contemporary architect, mm. um, in being interested in, in, in formal ideas, formal problems, um, in energy uh, appearing in buildings and tries to make that um, valid again in his contemporary architecture and and I think that's uh, uh, it's an incredible um, statement and achievement what, what Venturi did no? this, this directness that you can look at anything and and um, make it yours um, uh, by by trying to 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 be you know to, to make something that is, is is as good as as those examples that you really like mm. um so so for me it's it's a completely intuitive um, and for both of us no we it was a completely intuitive um thing to work with renaissance examples because we were we, we looked at the facade of say the palazzo borromeo of Pier ligorio and we said wow look it's a, it's a central line, it's a division, uh, horizontal division, one-to-one. -one. There's a central motive and this cross, that's, that's something we can still do today. Of course we have different means, mm. but we can work with the same content. I guess what I'm interested in is like how you look at buildings. Because uh, there is such a hunger and uh, desire for the contemporary, obviously, for obvious reasons. And especially amongst young architects, Generally, when precedents are dug out, they're of the recent past or of the very near present. It tends to be the case that um, architects shy away from looking too far back because there might be a prescribed way of reading historical buildings um, or an institutionalized way of understanding historical buildings that just doesn't appeal. But what, I, what I'm learning from hearing you um, now and having listened to some of your previous lectures is that there's all kinds of new potential for uh, revisiting historical precedents. And so, Thomas, I know you studied uh, under Jan Pieper mm -hmm. um, and you were researching Renaissance architecture while in school. Um, and so you probably have a kind of formal training in, in how to read and make sense of these types of buildings, whereas Oliver, on the other hand, I know that you were... But it's, it's not entirely true, because no. it's, it's funny that you bring this up. I was, I studied in Germany in Aachen, and um, 
the reason why I um why young people became one of the reasons why young people became my most important teacher he didn't teach studio but uh, he taught uh, history um architectural history was because there was a complete lack of other meaningful teachers you know uh, it was it was a complete void you know uh -huh. so it was the it was the time when um when germany took up some of the uh, british high tech and copied it in a kind of not very convincing way huh? so um so the um young people he was he came from the anthropological side of the kind of 70s and applied his, the anthropological view of um city ritual um the the idea of the city as um, as a theatrical scene onto um his um analysis of renaissance architecture and urbanism and the the richness of experience and and just the claim of how much of culture and thought can go into architecture that served as an example while um his um his way of perceiving architecture i felt looking back seems to me now much more um linked to literature mm. to narrative mm -hmm. than to direct perception of say proportion and gestalt mm. and um so um when i so for me it was like a typical relation to a teacher where the teacher suggests something or i read in his work that he suggests that if I, what if today's architecture could be as rich as an experience as the renaissance architecture huh? that was the pro that was the claim huh? mm. and a promise that i could never fulfill or find in my student work or in the teaching but it just stood there huh? Uh -huh. Well, then I decided to spend a year in Rome uh, at the La Sapienza to study. I had the chance to see a lot of the work that we are interested in now, and it somehow filtered into my memory huh? um, as a, as a raw material. Huh? Mm. I, I would, but I would say rather as a raw material that now becomes um, that memory becomes almost like a quarry from mm -hmm. which I, I take blocks, you know, huh? and, and rework them. Huh? Because um, um, the, the, um, our way of, of looking at, at say, Renaissance architecture, also other architects we are interested in, was hugely informed not by, but by, by problems of design huh? mm -hmm. in our work. Huh? Mm -hmm. We, it was hard work. Huh? It was not. A, we didn't start off with an with an ideological um, uh, judgment about it. Of course, we love it. We love the stuff. Huh? But it was when when we ask ourselves question of so how do you relate as two story building? How do you relate the two two levels to to one another? Huh? And of course. Uh, Renaissance uh, Palazzi, where they were asking that question all the time: How do you do the number two? How do you do the number three in terms of stories? Huh? That was one of the fundamental questions. So then you look at the stuff, but um, it was um, it was only through the work that the a new reading was possible because the the work was the questions came out of the work. Huh? Mm. That's um, so. It's it's completely opposite to a kind of nineteenth century education, a bizarre education, where you would have all the stuff like an alphabet in front of you, and you should you were asked to learn the alphabet. Huh? Mm -hmm. But for us, um, also, we are always perplexed to give reasons why we love the Renaissance so much because actually we um, 
we even have a very selective view of the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of buildings that we never speak about, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. because they don't tell us anything, but there are others that we constantly speak about and it literally never stops, uh -huh. <laughs> because they, are, they have an incredible depth and we can and they give answers to the most unexpected questions you know and it's it's as if the same building gives gives an answer to that question and another question and a different question so the um uh, the it's um i think the there's a kind of common learning process huh? mm -hmm. that only started when we were working together huh? mm and that takes sources and interests from before but now they are they are overlaid huh? mm -hmm. huh? to to an extent that when i see my notes from my studies in rome huh? i i only recall that i've seen the place huh? but today the the same building has a completely different meaning to me mm -hmm. It's also quite funny in the relation how we work together that we almost always agree on what's good and what's bad you know, there's, there's very little architects that Thomas adores, and I think they're rubbish. Yeah. Um, I think there's almost none. Mm. And and so whenever we, we, we show us something, we, we get kind of equally excited. And that's, I guess, quite special and a very lucky coincidence. No? Yeah. Um, I think it's worth actually uh, to step back for a moment and get a picture of your biographies. I know that there's been a there's been a great conversation you had with Andrew Clancy on the Register podcast a couple of years ago, and you covered some ground there in terms of talking about your roots into yeah. architecture. Yeah. Um, but there are some points that I wanted to pick up on, um, and I guess maybe uh, Oliver, starting with you, I know that you were a graffiti artist for ten years before mm -hmm. going into architecture, um, at the suggestion of your girlfriend's mom. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think from the outside, people might scratch their heads at how those two disciplines um, equate. And I think it has something to do with passion. <laughs> it has to do with passion, yes. I mean, for me, it was just a passion. It's something I stumbled upon, got really excited about, the idea that your name is visible everywhere in the city. Mm -hmm. Um, then I got really excited about formal problems in graffiti because mm -hmm. it's, you take normal letters and you distort them and you create energy and so it's, it's, it's not unlike mannerist mm -hmm. architecture or work in a way. This, this ideas of distortion, blowing up stuff, working with scales. And, but it's also, it, it gave me an incredible reading of the city. Because, you know, if you place a tag somewhere, you know exactly if this corner is prominent or not, how this, this surface relates to something else, to the, say, to the shop that's next door or to the, I don't know, it's the visibility from a certain angle and things like that. That's all the kind of stuff you think about when you, when you do graffiti or when you just walk to the city and look at that. And, and it's also a kind of quite typological thing graffiti it's 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 you know this is developed into certain types how you do it and um and so there's limits and restraints and there's also restraints in terms of your body size or where you can climb and things like that um and yeah but but for me it was something that i just really really loved and and i just knew if ever i want to be happy in the job i need to do find something that is similar 
to that and I didn't quite know what that would be. I was also interested in film or music and but then I started studying architecture and immediately I understood that, that this is it. Um, and I immediately understood that it's, it goes much, much deeper and it's much, much bigger than graffiti. And so, yeah, within kind of a year I shifted and mm. I just completely got hooked on architecture. And then Thomas, for you, you started by studying industrial design. That's true, yeah. I was always drawing from earliest childhood on. I never stopped drawing. I spent my adolescent years in the basement of my parents' house drawing, yeah, instead of meeting people, and <laughs> which I enjoy, really enjoyed. <laughs> and um, the um, and I start. I tried painting. I realized I was always pushed back to to the, to the to the line. Yeah? And um, from from there, there, I I went into industrial design because my father was a is a, is an engineer, and so there was a he had to do he had designer friends, so it kind of made sense. But in a year into my studies at at Kassel, um, I I uh, realized that friends who studied architecture were dealing with questions that for me felt much more profound. Uh, they were reaching deeper into history. Huh? They were reaching deeper into human experience of the city. Huh? The city and history, these two themes, they, uh, they were so important for me from the beginning. And in Germany, um, industrial design is, is very much rooted in, in the industrial history of the country. Huh? Starts with Peter Behrens and IG. And so it has a, a, a very, I would say, clearer limits in industrial production than in other countries, say Italy. So from there, and, and then I stopped and I started architecture and it was very clear that that was uh, much better for me. And then you both met working for Diener and Diener. But Oliver, you'd worked for Amelie Peter, uh, as well as OMA mm. uh, in Rotterdam. Um, and then Thomas, you, in addition to studying, was it in, you said Aachen University, you were in Cornell for a year? I was at Cornell for two years for to two be years. a master's. Yeah. And then you worked at SOM for a year. That's right, yeah. Um, and this was all before Diener and Diener? Or did that happen? Uh, for, for, yeah, for me it was before Diener and Diener. I, 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 after I finished my studies in Aachen, I went to Cornell and from there to SOM mm -hmm. and then I returned to Europe and um, I went directly to to Switzerland because I had worked at SOM that was before the dot, uh, during the dot-com boom mm -hmm. on on a large number of high-rise buildings in a very short time while my friends who had were already in Switzerland told me about the incredible um, meticulous detail work they were doing on really very refined projects mm -hmm. so um, I, I was sure that I would rather belong in that world than in, in into the commercial world of, uh -huh. of SOM. <laughs> and I guess OMA to a certain extent um, Oliver kind of brought you into the commercial world of architecture? Is that not the, <laughs> is that not the case? Um, I didn't go for that reason. <laughs> no, I know, but, I know, but in terms um, of like what you were exposed to in these like formative years leading up to the establishment of your own practice for me, it was the, the reason why I went to OMA was different. Mm -hmm. I I worked um, often 
after my last semester in at the ETH, my assistant, um, uh, she was she was actually working for Dina and Dina, and she was the HR person for Dina, and she said, "Don't you want to work for us for an internship before the diploma?" And they, she put me to Berlin to the Dina office in Berlin, and that was an amazing time for me. And it was the first time that I worked in an architectural practice where I actually saw all the struggles that I had while studying. Um, for instance, the problem of doubt and uncertainty, um, being kind of brought into the center of the discussions about the design and being part of the project in the end. And I thought that's, that was just so amazing. And then there was Berlin as a city that, that was a bit different than Berlin of today. Mm. And I thought I just want to go back to Berlin to work for that office. Again, it was also a young woman leading the office, Therese Ergard, who was just amazing. And it was the ambition to show the old guys in Basel that the Berlin office was much cooler and, and funkier. And mm. so that was really, really a pleasure to work there. It didn't happen because I did have, didn't have enough work. So I went to, to the office in Basel. Then got got later work for Miley Pet, and after four years in Switzerland, I just needed to get away, and so therefore, there was there was a decision, and Thomas and I started doing competitions while I was at Miley Pet, and he's in his last year at Diener, and we kind of had this discussion, let's form an office, and I said yes, but I just really need to go one year out. I need a year out to go somewhere else, and. Um, I I loved English architecture at the time. We were looking a lot at English architecture, and I thought so. Tony Fretton, Surgeon Bates, Caruso's engine, but then I thought, yeah, but it's kind of rather similar to what I would have experienced at Diener. Mm. So, and then I thought, okay, let's try Cool House because I was always fascinated by Cool House. And so I went there, and it was also kind of, you know, playing Champions League once uh -huh. um, in the big stadiums at night huh? uh -huh. and having the, the jet set life and flying like uh, very, very tired to Qatar and, and have kind of crazy meetings and fly back and things like that. Mm. It was good for a year, but I then I had it, you know, mm. and, and it was good that I had an escape plan. And uh, mm. the yeah. funny, the funny thing is that I think for us, uh, Oma and Kohlhaas is a very important point of reference in our discussion, and we, for us, it's um, Kohlhaas is, is is one one of the great greatest architects living. Um, well, in we have both a fascination for America, and for for American architecture say also of the type of SOM, but obviously not of the SOM that I have experienced. But it was a project it's a projection of the classical great phase of SOM of mm. Gordon Bunshaft, for mm -hmm. example. So um we we that that um almost anonymous greatness of American architecture we feel hugely attracted to. Mm. And so it was going to SOM was um it was an experience of being in this enormous office with so many people that worked like a machine and that was fascinating. Yet there was a big gap between, uh, architecturally speaking, between what was being designed there and what I was working on and what I imagine what SOM should be like mm. <laughs> or could be or has been. Mm. So um, yet it's, uh, it was, for me, it was so important to be at SOM because it completely eliminated all the fear and respect for for big projects huh? hmm. because it's um and also the um it made everything relative you know i i know that there can be you can have a, a more architecture in a bathroom extension than in a in a in a city with two million you know 
uh, because it's about the intensity of the work, huh? hmm. uh, the ideas that go into it. Huh? And while Diener and Diener is really architecture about the city, and, and we both share this, this passion and to understand your work in a kind of part of a cultural idea and, and being part of public space and, and that you can make a contribution um, to what's around. And, and that does also, it's kind of what is around is in the center of your project. And Cool House, we feel, is, is you know, it's, a lot of people would disagree, but for us it was a, a kind of modern idea of making an architecture that's part of the city, where, where the idea of urban, urban life is in the center of his project. So. Mm. And therefore... And, while, while we, we feel that in, in, in some of Roger Dino's project, the problematic nature of, of, of the fragmented city of today is being addressed. Huh? Um, but even more so in Kohlhaas' project, the, the, the contradictions of the modern age huh? between capitalism and uh, social ideas the city, the, the question of scales and money, huh? uh, um, they all involved. So this, uh, this openness of, and this fragmentary uh, nature of our situation, mm -hmm. we, really, we are really interested in that in Kola's work, huh? mm. because we feel that um, uh, architecture is not about um, just making peace with the situation or solving things. Huh? pacifying huh? mm. um, conflicts, but also to, um, uh, to articulate them. Huh? And to some extent, to agitate, or not? Um, to be... Sure, agitate, yeah, maybe, yeah, it's about energy, you know? Mm -hmm. I think uh, uh, good architecture always exudes an incredible energy and mm -hmm. sometimes it's a bit more about being calm and sometimes it's, mm -hmm. it's much more invigorating. I think when I said agitate I was thinking of like um, what good fiction tends to do which is to uh, reflect a contemporary condition back to its audience but in a way that um, you always felt but could never articulate mm -hmm. um, and there's a kind of uncanniness there or a surprise that is at its heart a little bit disturbing mm -hmm. and a little bit uncomfortable but um, totally curious and intriguing and it makes you want to look even closer mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I think um, for me the aspect of your architecture that makes me want to do that the most are your facades um, and I wonder if we could talk a bit about facades for a second and why um, they've gained so much importance in the way that you design and talk about your buildings? We, we saw in our work that uh, the facade, um, if we, we are in a situation where, where um, urbanism, the, the, the job of doing urbanism is, is given to the singular building in a way. That something that is in London here, that is already um, uh, almost completely the case while in Switzerland that is increasingly the case. So the, if the building has to do uh, uh, the job to, um, to give beauty, public space, to create um, uh, a, yeah, an, an idea of the city, then it's the facade's job to do that and to, um, uh, to create a, a sense of urbanity and not just on a functional level. We don't talk about ground ground floor uses, 
but on a on a level of of expression huh? and language, and we feel that the um, the language the the aspect of the, of architecture as a formal language has been um, overlooked in Swiss German architecture for a long time because the question of language has there has been an attempt of to tie um, the aspect of language together with plan and typology into a stable entity huh? mm -hmm. uh, kind of unity huh? and and we um, uh, we we um, embrace the fact that that unity has become uh, is increasingly lost huh? and that the building is a becomes more of an artifact that is um, composed of of pieces and aspects and uh, planes and literally planes that mm -hmm. put it together. It's also interesting is the relation of the facade. I mean, it's a kind of conflict situation. The facade now it's a very thin layer, um, and it deals with, with with a large scale on the outside with public space, with certain formal ideas or aspects and but it also deals on the inside with views with with also formal aspects and and those usually don't really relate you know especially not if you have an apartment building and there's just a kind of normal bedroom behind a certain type of window but on the outside this window has to provide for something else mm. and it was so great yesterday to see the red house by tony fretton um because we've been looking at this building for a long long time since it's been published and and then, you know, it has a symmetrical three-bay facade with a central bay sticking out with a very tall central window. And then from the plan and section, we would understand that on its inside it has this huge studio space, salon space. I don't know how he calls it, but it's this the very, hall, very... Yeah. Huh? This hall, yeah. This yeah, but there's a special name for it. It's yeah. a very, very big space that is on kind of two-story high. Then you're inside. The bay window is asymmetrically to that space, and the central window is also asymmetrical. So it's a t totally informal and rather relaxed way how this in huge and, and formally very important space relates um, to this bay window and the centrality of the facade. And, and that was like a real unexpected revelation, and mm. it was really nice because it, it kind of took also away the weight of that space, that it doesn't have a central axis and things, but it's, it's in itself a huge space with some carefully positioned windows, but it's, it doesn't work in an actual relationship. But for the outside of the building, the actual relationship is important. And yeah, that's in our building on Herdenstraße, for instance, we also have a central bay window. Um, but but even the, the rooms that are in this in this window, they also have the corner of the bay within within the space, and that gives a beautiful second or even third scale within that one room. It's not only that you can look in the street space, but also this kind of the facade and the room. They have a almost like a communication together. Mm. Mm. And if you if if one in the case of Tony Fratton's Red House, if if you wouldn't have had that independent idea of that facade he wouldn't have a you know, almost a counterpart huh, for the inside to work with huh? mm -hmm. so you need a, a kind of semi-autonomy of the facade as a starting point to develop these these tensions huh? so that that's so interesting so it's it's that's going completely against the notion of a facade being the result of a projection of of needs from inside to the outside. Huh?
but it's um, it's it's about um, it's discovering that that a facade has formal rules of its own. That once you you're entering that um, that conversation on the facade, these you you're not free anymore as a designer, but you are you're entering a set of dependencies huh, where the facade says, "Okay, I have my own will." Huh? Mm. And this is how you design literally as well. It sounds like where uh, the facade on a model, usually at one to fifty, mm. um, is studied and iterated, almost independent of the plan in some cases. Yes. And that you will detach and and um, re-adhere different versions of the facade. Well, maybe the plan is being worked out as its own problem. Yes. We have a very um, intuitive way of working on the plan and of the facade. Um, and we have a very linear way. We don't do options. We just go one way. And so, so and we're in constant discussion um, and so if there is a good idea in the facade, um, it usually has a formal strength somehow and it comes in conflict with what is the design of the plan at that moment. And out of that, there, there's something is developing, no? So, so it's, it's an operation that is, 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 is ongoing and sometimes, I mean, to, to design the plan, especially in Swiss housing, where the surfaces and, and, and the relation of rooms and, and the size of things are, are very, very clearly defined. It takes a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. So usually when we start with the facade to, to really design it, apart from having ideas, um, the plan is already quite developed. And, and, but that doesn't make it um, less independent in a way. So just, yeah. and, and our experience was uh, increasingly that, um, that when you have a um, contradiction between, say, the plan and the facade, that um, there will be a way to solve it. <laughs> yeah. Now, we are extremely optimistic about it. And there will be a way to be stubborn, both about the facade and about the plan. Because we are not architects who tell the client, oh, we needed to move that room because of the facade, because that would not help us. Um, because we live in a world where the facade, the plan, nobody cares about the facades, and and the plan is everything. Um, so the but it was interesting that you sometimes you need to do only have very very minute very little operations to 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 reconcile them yeah? to bring them together, huh? mm. and they can it's not um, you have don't have to think them together from the beginning. Huh? Uh, so we are we are kind of relaxed about it for a long time, yeah, mm -hmm. and we are extremely optimistic that things will come back, come together in the end. Mm. Our um, our um, urge to to um, impose control over the totality huh, is becoming less and less with our work. Huh?
there wasn't only no urban context that would kind of tell us how we should design the facade. There was also no more the constructive context, say the the you know Swiss architecture ten or fifteen or twenty years ago. Um, for instance, monolithic concrete construction, colored concrete, things like that. It was just, to us, it was not available because our projects that we started with were under quite an impressive um, cost, um, how do you say it? cost? Um, pressure. Yeah. Pressure, yeah. Um, and so th th for the first building we had to build, it was clear we had to do outer insulation and stucco. And that, that was something that, that very little contemporary architects tried. There was Peter Merkley did, did one, even with plastic windows, which was quite interesting. And, but a lot of, of the others did try to be very abstract about that and, and they were a bit ashamed and it was kind of seen as not correct to do it and not being constructed enough or real material. And it comes also, of course, from, from problems that could happen and you need to maybe in 20 years those insulations are are gone, you need to redo it the was, facade. It was seen as but a decline, as a decline as a, yeah. of, 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 of architectural quality. Yeah. <laughs> because the... the um, when when we were when the the building physic decided that we would not have twelve centimeters of insulation but twenty five or twenty eight, then the the um, a massive construction with a massive outer layer and inner layer w would be impossible from a certain point on. So what's the how do you um, deal with that cheapening hmm, of mm. the building, uh, with that loss of of where the, the value of also the architectural significance of the building at the time was based on monolithic weight huh? and closed form huh? um, a lack of, of, of open joints a kind of illusion of, of truthful construction huh? and, and we um, when, we f when we discovered through that work uh, with the outer insulation that when we liberate ourselves from that um, dogma we are, um, we are we can open up towards all kinds of uh, more complex ideas of 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 the relationship between construction and truth mm. layer construction open forms um, where you can actually where you're self-conscious about uh, the hollowness of the um, of the layering layered mm -hmm. facade that was a, a liberation and it that I think that has opened up a kind of um, an ongoing interest in 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 the in the in all forms of layerings and skins. No? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that um, I guess just to to kind of break down this um, dichotomy between this illusion of authenticity that's it apparently achieved through creating buildings that look solid, but in fact can't be anymore because of technical, environmental, and economic constraints versus creating buildings that are apparently almost paper thin or have outer skins that are as hollow as eggshells. Mm. I think architects begrudgingly move in that direction. Very rarely do they embrace it, and very rarely do they see the potential and opportunity to exploit the cheapness of contemporary materials and, um, and the thinness uh, and malleability of them as well. Mm -hmm. I feel like generally architects would feel like they'd failed if they had to resort to that and yet you seem to be embracing it wholeheartedly um, and finding all kinds of new potentials in there 
And I think the main potential that's most exciting to me is this idea, not of tectonics um, as we know it, but of what you've termed the visual tectonics. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about what that means to you. I, I want to go one, one step back. Sure. Um, because building with cheap materials or, or with construction, with joints and things like that, it doesn't mean that you embrace, say, a kind of trashy way to do architecture. Um, I had this discussion with a friend who's the same age as us, but I would say a generation ahead. Uh, no, not ahead, uh, before. Um, and she thought that our building at Herrenstraße was actually the trashy way of making a facade. But I mean, that facade cost us so much time to design and construct. And it's it doesn't it's not that it's not relying on on a system that somebody sells you and you just kind of glue it on the building. Oh, it's bespoke. It, it's it's, it's bespoke, and it's like uh, when you go to Savile Row, you know, you get the finest uh, stuff, and every joint is, is very carefully judged and and fought for. No, mm. whereas she built a building that they glued very thick ceramic tiles on it, and. In my opinion, that's like really trashy because you see the silicon <laughs> joints and you see all kinds of shit and it looks really, really bad. But for, for, for the old generation, this is still valid out of shell because it's ceramic tiles that are glued on the facade. Um, so, so therefore, yes, it's, 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 it's also not the kind of, you know, cheapness of, of cool husks sometimes with, with working with spruce board or I don't know what, you know, and kind of transforming it in, into something else. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's tailor-made stuff, um, but, but with different materials. It's something else. Um, and it costs us a lot of, lot of work and energy. Mm. So but now I've got your question. The visual tectonics. The visual tectonics. The, um, we um, look looking at um, uh, looking at, for example, the Renaissance, when, and uh, and ask, when one asks oneself what tectonics means, um, there are different answers. One of the answers uh, that was that's bit one that where the tectonics is three, seen through a kind of uh, the eyes of the mechanical age is one of a uh, of a gravitational tectonic where things are stacked. Huh? Um, elements are physically attached to one another to defy gravity and to move up to, towards the sky. Um, but if you look at, at a lot of, most of the architecture of, um, say, of Europe is masonry architecture. And you have, um, have large walls with windows and you have architectural elements that, um, that give a structure and gestalt and a form to, that, to the facade. And um, That's but, essentially Roman architecture, no? Yeah, and, like and, and very, very seldom do you really need a kind of um, um, the full, the full alphabet of of the conventional uh, classical language that has to be um, uh, kind of uh, done on the facade. Uh, for example, somebody like um, um, uh, Palladio, who did villas also with budgets that were quite limited. Did enormous, beautiful um, render walls with a minimum of of um, architectural elements uh, in natural stone that sometimes float, huh? and sometimes and but it's uh, they they imply a tectonic where the forms they 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 come together in the eye of the beholder and they create centers they create 
um, centralities, uh, they create edges, they provide um, um, an understanding of how this facade wants to be read from the top to the bottom, from the center to the periphery, from the periphery to the center, from the lower part to the upper part, and so on, or from the left to the right. And so, so this um, this reading, this, uh, this this the capacity to read architecture with the eye, is um, is a necessary ability to read the the architecture, the European architecture in general. So, um, the visual tectonic is not a it's 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 not a new thing. It's not something we claim for ourselves, but we think that it's um, um, as the the tectonic that is weight-based is actually a very limited view of tectonics. No? Because we also think that the Greek, the Greek temples are not about weight. No? They are, they are, they are, they are the weight, where the, the weight, the, the, the weight uh, um, uh, conflict, the tension becomes the strongest. No? Mm. Um, the idea of weight is always suppressed in classical architecture with flowers and um, and uh, organic forms and so on in the capital. And, and even the work of Hans Kolhoff, you know, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily about weight because mm -hmm. this, this stone clad facade, it's more about how pieces overlap with each other and kind of make a visual solidity, but you can still feel mm -hmm. that it's not a massive stone construction. Mm -hmm. In those early projects in Berlin where he mm -hmm. makes very tectonic facades, uh, he calls them tectonic facades, they're, they're their skins, their skins, mm -hmm. and it's. Uh, I, but the the question of weight is really interesting. And being here in London to speak about this subject, because um, when you look at the arch a lot of the architecture in London that has been inspired by, say, Palladio, huh? um, if you look at the Chiswick House, huh? um, and I've seen it uh, three years ago, I saw it for the first time. Uh, it is. It's a paper thin uh, model. Huh? It has a specific weight that's all a third of the of a Palladian villa. Huh? Mm -hmm. Yet its architecture it works and it's adapted to the gentleness of the of the English situation. Mm -hmm. uh, the 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 um, of the landscape, of the climate, of the green, huh? mm -hmm. of the, the the country that is protected and that for a long time ha has was able to live without uh, city walls. No? Mm. We have a series of projects. Sorry, we have a series. <laughs> we have a series of projects that, that float. Yes. Um, and we discovered that first, I think, in a in a project for a town hall, uh, we had a central space, and it was really dividing two masses, a bit like a hamburger, two masses, and in a floating condition, and. And we realized we can do that with lines and things like that. Um, so for our last building, we just finished the house in Waldmeisterweg uses also yes. this, this central line. And even that, I would say, is still tectonic architecture in the sense that it's um, th there's this this book by Hans Sedelmeier where he speaks about the loss of the center. And it's a bit problematic because he has a real problem with modernity. But he says there he speaks about Boulet and he's he's, he's annoyed by by the by the spherical rooms uh, and forms by Boulet because he says this does not does not recognize earth as a basis for architecture anymore. He's, Sedlmeier says everything that recognizes earth um, or, the, or the surface of ground as the basis is still a tectonic 
architecture. And so therefore, if you have a, something that floats or hovers over a sur horizontal surface, in our view, that's still tectonic. Mm -hmm. And no. I think that's, yeah. yeah. And then also we, um, we think that when we look at, at contemporary or at modern art, um, uh, art is always a, also a kind of teacher for architecture to think about um, uh, formal relationships. And so the explorations and the knowledge of, of, of contemporary and modern art um, is, um, uh, informs also our capacity to see relationships in architecture. And so that, that is also, um, uh, so architecture is, is somehow not isolated from the other arts, but we think that that's part of the, ex the same experience. And often art in our eyes is a bit more advanced and is teaching us things. And we as architects are really slow and we have to drag along with us many other, many things like bathrooms and so on and toilets that we have to make work in, inside our buildings. So maybe it takes us a few more decades, decades to, um, to bring artistic experience into architecture. To what extent do you see yourselves as working in an art practice or as artists? I'm thinking of um, the way, for example, in one of your projects, you've cut, well, first of all, you've built a hollow column mm -hmm. because of how it contributes to the room it's in and how it delineates the space, not because it's holding anything up. Mm -hmm. And it's quite a beautiful terrazzo column. That one is out of stone. It's, it's it's clad in stone. Clad in stone. Yeah. yeah. And then the stone, the hollow stone column is casting a fake wood shadow across the floor. No, that's a different that, project. A different so I'm thinking project. of yeah. the, okay. Yeah. The, the, the one that's casting the shadow is, is, is load-bearing. It's terrazzo and it's load-bearing. It is load-bearing. It is okay. load-bearing. Okay. Because yeah. okay. only load-bearing columns can cast a shadow. <laughs> <laughs> well, in any case, though, Let's separate the two. You have a real column made out of terrazzo casting a fake shadow made out of wood in the yeah. ground. And then in other projects you have hollow columns which are serving a different purpose um, that has to do with d defining the space in, in the interior. But also, um, I mean, they become sculptural elements in their own right to a certain degree. And I feel like decisions like that might often be made by someone who thinks like an artist or who thinks um, like a trickster, uh, or who thinks like someone who wants to um, make a problem out of the way we think about um, living and about building. No, we, we, we don't see ourselves in, in, in this kind of league of being an artist or something. Mm. I think it's, it's, you know, architecture history is full of columns that don't support anything. Um, and I don't know... But that they ser that serve a, a visual or a spatial purpose. Yeah. Mm. And, and, yeah. and 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 I don't know in English, in, in German you would say an Stütze, for something that is load bearing and it would be defined by an engineer its size. No, maybe a post, in English is mm -hmm. that a, a thing a, um, a square or rectangular volume, um, that's holding up a ceiling. Sure, yeah. yeah? And and uh -huh. and but then in, if it's a rectangular volume, if you call it a pillar, a pfeiler, in German. It's an architectural element, mm -hmm. and the proportion of the pillar is defined by architectural needs and not by structural needs. Um, and we speak almost 
entirely, uh, except when we design the, the parking garage, we speak about pillars, and it's only in the parking garage where we actually have um, Stützen. Mm. Um, so therefore, it's just uh, yeah. Um, so so it's not it's we are we are we are earnest and sincere about it, and not we just um, we say this with a hollow. Um, uh, the hollowness we underline is because it's always it's always very nice to um, to make some of our colleagues nervous, you know, <laughs> about that, you know, that we enjoy that very much. <laughs> Maybe it's wrong me to fixate too much on hollow columns because, of course, there are, as you say, many hollow columns in architecture and architectural history. There are other things too that make me um, that pique my curiosity and make mm. me wonder how you define. Uh, the role you're playing as an architect versus that of someone like an artist. So for example, in one project, the way you enter the building is by whispering into the ear of a metal cat. Mm -hmm. um, and, you have and to ring first. You have to ring first. <laughs> and, and I think it's in the same project. In the communal circulation area, there are these giant fasteners yeah. holding up the glass plates that form the balustrade. Yeah. Um, similarly, the windows out onto a winter garden um, look like doors. Mm -hmm. They're the scale of a door. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the way you photograph your projects, I didn't realize this, but you handmade fake cardboard furniture to populate the interiors of your buildings. Yes. In some instances. In others, you would fill a large room with just a guitar standing upright or something. Yeah. And there's this there's this kind of interest in, I think, um, upending certain expectations about what we think about when we look at architecture. And I, I tell myself this is what a trickster would do, and to a certain extent, uh, all artists are tricksters. And so that's maybe where the question came from. But the, 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 in those two cases, the, the problem was very practical. If you um, have a photographer um, photograph your building and it's about housing or um, apartments, then uh, do you have it, uh, get the photographs of the empty apartment or do you get a sense of inhabitation? Because this space, empty space, is very difficult to read as such uh, for the eye in photographs. So um, we, um, in the first case of the cardboard uh, furniture, we were working, in both cases, we were working with the Swiss photographer Walter Meyer, and um, we, we felt that it was not good to bring in real furniture from the furniture store. It, because it was actually all his idea. Hmm. It was his idea, no? He wanted, he wanted furnished apartments, and, and, and he said it's tacky to, to rent stuff. Yeah, he and he said, can't you build models, no? Yeah. Because he liked our models. Yeah. And, um, and Thomas actually builds all our models most of the time and with the help of other people. And uh, correct me, but I thought it was entirely Walter's idea, also the way those they would be made somehow. And you went to his... I went to his studio and I built them every evening. I went there for a couple of weeks. And he had books, you know, that, because we thought about abstract furniture, but he had books and he was very precise, a yes. stool by laws and... and uh, I started out building a, um, a generic table, that what I thought was a generic table, like a... And he looked at it and he said, oh, that's a bit um, 
boorish. <laughs> and then I said, okay, you have to, please tell me what to do, you know? Uh, so then he pulled out this large collection of, of books on, on, on traditional classical furniture. Huh. Um, um, so from which he selected the ones I should build. So there was um, an English chair from the early um, 1800s. There was a lot of Biedermeier from Austria and Germany. There was the Loos, the Egyptian Loos uh, stool. Mm -hmm. There was a, um, a table from owned by Thomas Jefferson, uh, mostly classical stuff. <laughs> and uh, so they, this populated the, um, uh, the space. Mm. And, uh, and so it, it was a, like a, it was a bit like a zombie, you know? It was they, these cardboard furniture, they have a presence, yet they are not really there. Huh? Mm. And they are, they are because they are... They they're are much friendlier than a zombie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because they also their color was amazing, how the color of those furnitures, this kind of brownish uh, mm. corrugated cardboard, how that relates to the colors of the interiors. It was really fantastic. Yeah. And, and then when we did the, the other building in the Herrenstraßen building, we had the same problem. At first, we wanted to have real people in, inside the apartments. And we, we did, we, we cast a, a series of people and they came and they, and Walter took photographs, but it was completely unsuccessful mm. because they, they were so specific, these people, and they were sucking the energy out of the space. So instead of pe talk, having people to do certain things, we thought we had props, like theater props, that would indicate um, or talk about inhabitation and use, so that there would be the guitar, there would be the umbrella, the the steam cooker, the um, what else? Some some other elements mm. that would somehow, uh, or the walking stick, huh? mm. that would somehow speak about the absence of a person who may may have been just there. Mm. It just strikes me that the degree of care with which you approach the construction of the image of your projects is quite uncommon. And maybe it's not the work of an artist per se, but it certainly isn't what you'd expect an architect to do when, when they document their work. I spoke with Stephen Bates about this yesterday, mm -hmm. and um, it's, it's, it's a problem that we have with the, with the last building we did, which is this house on Waldmeisterweg, where we have this narrative um, that it could be like a beach house in this... Uh, uh, green and leafy area of the city, but when Helen Binet came to photograph it, it was end of November, very grey weather in Zurich. There was fog on the first day, and which actually resulted in a beautiful series of images. But if you want to tell a developer that yo this house has the lightness and the the joy of a beach house, he will not see it. You know, <laughs> he will see a cold, austere, very formal architecture, and so. Yeah, sometimes, you know, you just, uh, maybe we have to re-photograph it for, for that documentation or, or selling reasons of a building. Uh -huh. But that set that Helene made is, is still amazing to us because mm -hmm. to us it's, when we finish the project, we kind of leave it aside and, and all the energy you put in, all the struggle, it kind of goes. No? And, and also all the ideas, you kind of did them and they're gone for a while and maybe some come back in a different phase but it's 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 kind of interesting how when you haven't built them you kind of constantly reuse similar ideas and test them out and when you've worked through them and you've constructed them and you've seen them they kind of 
they're on their own and they're not so important anymore and mm. new ideas appear mm-hmm. and but still for us it's the photographs that we get from those buildings is a way to revisit those buildings and most of the time I like the images much better than the actual building. <laughs> There's a, I'm always a bit worried when I go back because the Hellerstrasse next to the football field and I always go f- to, the, to the games when Zurich plays and I always walk, walk by the building but I'm always a bit anxious, you know. Uh, how does it look? Is there a problem? How, how do people react? And, and, and with the images I never have that problem because that's kind of a, a very safe and also a distant way to see them. It's not our way to see them but somebody else's and that opens up qualities that we did not expect. And it's a bit similar when somebody writes about your work. Mm. He brings in aspects and ideas you would have never thought of or he sees things you never thought of and that's that's very rewarding in a way that, that something one does triggers things in other people and that come back to you. I'm, I think Hopefully we'll just continue to go until someone barges in because yeah. I, I really want to. There's a few more quick questions yeah, yeah, I want to okay, ask. Nice. Um, one reference that comes up again and again uh, when you talk about your projects and it's uh, Michelangelo's Laurentian Library, mm-hmm. um, where for listeners who aren't familiar with the project, um, it's it's a room with a very grand and considered and like apparently constructed interior. But when we look at a plan. Uh, detail of it, we see that um, these columns are pushed into a wall that's almost paper thin and that um, there's so much work being done to achieve a certain effect in the interior that in fact has more to do with uh, a sleight of hand or a certain kind of magic and that's different from construction. And so you have this kind of dichotomy of architecture versus construction um, and there's a kind of strangeness, I think, in that comparison. How, why is architecture distinct from construction to you? The, um, uh, the um, today's construction methods don't contain an architectural culture. Huh? So the construction methods of today need a, an opposite, an, a will, an idea. Huh? of what could be done with them. So um, when we design and we try to find the expression of a facade, often we consciously um, um, refuse to decide on the materiality for quite a long time while designing it. So that that the, that the, uh, the discussion centers on, on, on proportion and structure and relief at form rather than on materiality. So then when the, of course, but when the materiality comes into play, then the, um, we, um, the materiality gives us a kind of resistance huh? because we have to construct it. Huh? Mm-hmm. And we really, really enjoy that resistance between the, the formal will and the materiality which doesn't mean that we are um, working against the material when we construct it, but, it's, it's, but we can be very clear in our internal discussion when we go with the logic of the material and when we break the logic of that material. I think just as a way to wrap up now, part of, part of the richness of that visual experience has to do with 
the inherent humor, I think, in a lot of the work that you do. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, historical reference in relation to the postmodernist tradition and the specific type of humor um, embedded in that, which is one of irony. Um, and this kind of plays out across mediums from literature to art to architecture. And I know that you've, you've asserted over and over again that yours is not an ironic architecture, um, but it's a certain type of humor that you use a cultural association to try and unpack. And you talk about like speech and, and language in German and the way that seriousness is conveyed with a serious tone. Whereas in the kind of English tradition, seriousness can come through the lightest um, and most humorous tone. And in fact, sometimes the more serious something is, the more, the funnier it comes across. Could you talk a little bit more about, I guess first the idea of humor in your work, and then the specific cultural association you've made and how you align yourself at once with a kind of Swiss tradition and then something that maybe is more other. I think there's two aspects to the humor question. Um, the reason why we don't like irony or why we think it's problematic in postmodern architecture, irony uses, is, 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 is claiming to be serious and, and the seriousness conceals a joke. No? Um, I think that was Schopenhauer, no? Whereas humor is using a joke to say something very serious. No? And and we our work is very, very serious, but we also enjoy doing it. And and you know, we talk a lot about it and also with the studio and we have pleasure in doing things. It's architecture is such a generous profession, you know, we, we give and give and we we can create things um, that are unexpected and that, that are delightful. And so this joy we experience, it kind of comes into the work and, and humor is a part of that. And you know, the um, humor is, is uh, fundamentally inclusive. Humor takes your opposite into, into your own realm, hmm. includes him or her, while um, uh, irony is creating a border, is excluding the other person. Mm. The, we, we've stumbled across an interesting writing by Arnold Hauser um, on mannerism, in which he, um, he linked um, the, man, the, the mannerist angst of, of the 15th century to the emergence of humor, uh, where, um, where humor, in his, in his view, um, is a um, sign of, of being emphatic about the, um, the, the helplessness of the human situation huh? and the kind of the lost individual in a tragic situation, while, um, while um, sarcasm or irony exist before that, before mannerism, as a way of just putting somebody down, you know, creating a distance. So that I th probably irony can be seen as part of a humanist idea. The thing about with the tone, I think it's very important because if you create something like symmetry, or kind of classical aspects in a building, but you're in a really everyday agglomeration situation where left and right the buildings don't look so great and are not glamorous and are not don't have 
certain ambition. Ambition, <laughs> yeah, ambition. Um, it's it's toning it down, making it thin, making it light, making it humorous. Is a way of totally including all these crappy buildings next and right. They're not a problem, you know. It's it's um, when you meet people. It's also you know you try to be open at first and and. and Know, not always show you back and think you're something better than others um, and and even if some people may be stronger and, and lead forward somewhere um, it's, it's it's better to take everyone with you instead of having everyone against you and that uh, question of including things goes into the f uh, materiality physicality of things I mean the uh, the our the TV screens and the all the aspects of consumerism, they should be um, comfortable in our houses. We don't want to exclude, create an, ex an exclusive environment in which everything that's not precious and beautiful, um, it's, it looks terrible. Huh? We have to um, include the, the, norm, the normality. Huh? And if normal, if plastic, um, to, uh, plastic toys on the ground look great, huh? in a place that's a good sign. Huh? Oliver and Thomas, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Tyler the Creator. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Oliver Lutjens and Thomas Pedmanabin, and special thanks this week to Splice Studios and the Architecture Foundation. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com 
juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.